You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. John chapter 3. This morning we're going to begin with verse 22 and read through verse 30. Looks like everyone has found their place, I think. John chapter 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, his joy, this joy of mine, is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would be pleased to open our hearts to this great passage, to the great message that's here in this passage, such an important message for us. Father, we pray that you would be pleased to teach us, that we hear your voice from your word, that, Lord, you would train us, especially in regards to gospel ministry, which is so much uh, in view here. Oh, Father, we do ask that, Lord, you would also uh, reach to each of us for the Issue of envy is certainly in the text as well. Well, Father, we ask that, Lord, you would transform us, that you would use your word this morning to make our hearts even more like Christ, that as we depart from this place this morning, we would find ourselves changed by your word, and that the change would be a lasting change that would go with us down those steps and throughout the community and for the rest of our walk here in this life and into eternity forevermore. Do this great work, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Now, before we dive into verse 22, I'd really like to kind of back up for a little bit and take a look at where we've been. And we've been doing that, but this time I want to kind of stand way back uh, to where we might might zoom back just a little bit further. And I think it will help to cement in our minds uh, what the Holy Spirit is doing here in John's Gospel. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 1, and following there, we find Jesus at a wedding in Cana. And you can read John's Gospel for the first time and scratch your head and say, well, what is the significance of Jesus turning uh, water into wine? And when we were there, I I shared with you that one of the key uh, verses in answering that question is found in verse 6, namely with the Jewish rites of purification. You see that? The the jars, we could just say the jars. That is is, uh, 
uh, really key to understanding that. Here are these jars. What are these jars for? Their purpose is for, for containing this water that was used in these various rites of purification. And by transforming, whether the water was transformed in the jars or whether the water was transformed in the well, you recall that when we were studying that passage, I brought to your attention that some Greek scholars believe, because the Greek word for draw, the Greek word behind draw, almost always refers to drawing from a well, that perhaps it's the well that was transformed, that the water coming from the well actually was transformed into wine. Whether it was that or whether, as traditionally most of us have heard over the years, it was the water that was in the jars. Either way, the message has not changed. This old uh, external rite of purification is now being set aside because something new has come. In other words, the old external rite of purification is now giving way to he who actually can purify inwardly. That is the significance of this first sign. And as we begin to see that, then, then the, the rest of it all starts to fall into place. Because after that story, we come to verse 13 and following, where we see Jesus coming in and cleansing the temple. He comes in, he finds the money changers, he finds the, the livestock, and he hears the rattling of all of the change. What's he do? He clears the place. This is taking place almost certainly in the court of the Gentiles where worship ought to be taking place. He clears the place, and then the Jewish authorities, probably the temple police and members of the Sanhedrin, approach him in verse 18. They say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answers, and this is, this is key here. Jesus, in his answering, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, what's being shared there is that physical temple and the tabernacle that 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 was before it, all pointed to Christ, and that physical temple will now give way to Jesus, who is the temple, to Christ, who is the temple. And then we come to chapter 3, and we have this, this meeting with one of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. And though his, what's on his mind exactly is not recorded for us, but undoubtedly, given the context, he probably had a similar question to the rich young ruler, Lord, or good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, whether he asked the question and John didn't record the question or whether he never asked the question, but Jesus looked into his heart, which I believe is the latter, that Jesus just looked into his heart because that's the context. If you look at verses 23 and 24, many are seeing the signs, they're believing, but Jesus is not entrusting himself to them because he knows what's in the heart. He knows what's in our hearts. I think as Nicodemus comes to him, there's no question asked. Jesus knows what's on his mind, and Jesus says to him, listen, unless you're born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. Now, why is that so significant? Because Nicodemus is a prize example, if you will, of the Pharisees who were all about external. They would have been all, around, all about these purification rites, if you will. They were all about externals, all about self-discipline. On the outside, they looked beautiful. But I, my guess is Nicodemus is a very tormented person because he realizes that he is not on the inside what he appears to be and what, uh, and what he is trying to appear to be on the outside. How much would that torment you? 
especially getting up in front of people and speaking and parading around like you're something on the outside when all the while you realize fully you are not on the inside what you're leading people to believe you are on the outside. If you have any kind of conscience whatsoever, that would have to be tormenting you. What does Jesus say to him? Oh, Nicodemus, you have to be born again or you can't even see the kingdom of God. In fact, Nicodemus, you ought to know this. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, why should Nicodemus have known that? Because Jesus, is, Jesus has his, and no doubt he has Ezekiel 36 in mind. And we've looked at Ezekiel 36. So what are we seeing from this? What we're seeing from this is that the promises of Ezekiel 36, namely this promise of being born again, born from above, born from heaven, if you will, uh, regeneration, whatever you want to call it, this whole thing that was promised through Ezekiel and the Old Testament is now being fulfilled by him who will not baptize with water, but he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And that brings us to... Uh, our text this morning in verse 22. Now, uh, let, let me just go ahead and, and let a little bit of the cat out of the bag here while we're on this. Uh, if we were to stand back from the text that we're going to study here in a little bit, we're going to see that John the Baptist, who is representative of the last of the Old Testament prophets. In fact, Jesus says about him in Matthew 11 that, of, that John is the greatest man who ever lived. Isn't that what he says? I tell you, of men born of women, there is none greater than John. And here we see as John will decrease. The Old Testament prophets and the cast of the Old Testament prophets will decrease as Jesus increases. The author to the letter of Hebrews, you don't need to turn there. I'll just read it for you. The author to the letter of Hebrews is saying something very similar in the prologue to his to his letter, when he says, long ago and at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, the last of which would have been John the Baptist. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he's appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world, and etc., and etc., etc. In fact, you can hear a lot of the things that we've been studying in John uh, in that. One of these days, Lord willing, we'll study through Hebrews. It'll be a fascinating uh, thing to do. But nevertheless, the Old Testament prophets, finalized by John the Baptist, gives way to Jesus. So we have the purification rites giving way to him who purifies. We have the temple giving way to he who is the temple. We have the promise given to Ezekiel, giving way to him who can actually fulfill that promise and baptize with the Holy Spirit. And we have the Old Testament prophets, finalized by John the Baptist, giving way to Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay, with that in mind, let's start. Verse 22. After this, after this is our first two words. After what? Well, Jesus has been in Jerusalem, right? He's been at the first of three Passovers that John will record for us. The third Passover actually will culminate in the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb. Now, He is the Lamb. He will offer Himself as the Lamb in that third Passover uh, three years from now. Uh, if you will, now being where we are in John's gospel. Jesus has been in Jerusalem. He's been observing the Passover. And now he and his disciples depart for the Judean countryside. And we are told that he, re that he remained there with them 
uh, meaning he was there for a period of time, and that he was baptizing. Now, let's stop right there before we go any further, because sometimes skeptics will say, you know, the Bible's just full of all these contradictions. And here's an example of one. Here we're told that Jesus is baptizing in verse 22. Then when we come to chapter 4, verse 2, we're told that Jesus didn't baptize. Well, did he baptize or didn't he baptize? And every time I'm on one of these, I think of a friend I had when I was in seminary. Uh, he, he was a, an engineer, and we had a lot in common because I, right out of high school, I entered into an engineering program. I was going to be an electronic engineer is what I thought I was going to be. I never finished the program. That's a story for another day. But we had so much in common, and we used, to, we used to spend a lot of time talking about, you know, in engineering, I mean, you know, the bridge out here, you know, you don't want to just be fast and loose with those girders. I mean, those girders all come with specifications. This girder will hold so many pounds uh, at a certain temperature, plus or minus 5% or 10%. You wouldn't want it to be probably any sloppier than that. And the answer is black and white. You know, will the bridge hold the truck that's coming across it or won't it? But when you come into matters of theology, this used to drive my friends so nuts. Was Jesus baptizing? Yes. Was Jesus baptizing? No. Uh, was he baptizing? Yeah. Was he baptizing? No. <laughs> I used to have so much fun with him on this. You see, there's a sense here where Jesus was baptizing. But there's another sense where Jesus wasn't baptizing. A real simple example happens all the time that we don't put any thought to. You're broke down along the road. You know a fella who owns a tow truck company. He's Joe Smith. We'll call him that. You get on your phone. You call, hey, Joe, and you know I'm in the weeds out here. Will you come and get me? He says to you, I'll be here in 20 minutes. Just hang tight. Well, 20 minutes later, here comes a truck. Says Joe's towing on the side of it, but Joe's not driving it. He's got one of his guys driving, and he got tied up or something. He wasn't able to. He wanted to do it himself, but he got tied up. One of his guys coming. Question, did Joe show up? Well, in one sense, he did. You called Joe. He said he'd be there in 20 minutes. He was here. One of his trucks was here. In one sense, we could say, yeah, Joe, Joe, Joe's come out. Joe come out and got us out of the ditch. But was Joe actually there? Was he actually the one with the tow truck? Well, in that sense, no. Is Jesus baptizing well, yes, his disciples are baptizing. Did Jesus himself actually ever perform the rite of baptism? No. There's a very good reason for that. If we have time this morning, I'll go into it, but I don't want to tax our minds just yet for that. There's a very good reason why Jesus didn't. Uh, we'll maybe look at that here in a few minutes. With this all being said, look at verse 24. Verse 24 is, is uh, fast. Well, let's back up for a minute. Look at verse 23. John is also baptizing, and this is really important. I almost skipped it. It would be disastrous to skip verse 23. John's, John's baptizing at Enon near Salim. Now, where that exactly is is disputed. Scholars fuss about where that is. What we can say for sure is it's in the, in the Samaritan region. It's in the region of Samaria. So John is up north of where Jesus is baptizing. And they're probably not very far away from each other. And here people are coming to uh, John. And what's interesting about this verse, and why we can't skip it, is there's actually some overlap taking place here. You know, Jesus' ministry has begun. Uh, Jesus, in terms of his earthly ministry, it's, it's underway. And yet John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of Christ, there's a short period of time where his ministry is still underway. 
It's still taking place. Now, if you look at verse 24, this is fascinating. Verse 24, for John had not yet been put in prison. And some of you say, well, what's so fascinating about that? Well, keep your place in John 3 and turn with me to Mark chapter 1. I'll show you something here. We could do this in Matthew too, but it's a little simpler to do it in Mark, a little less material. Mark chapter 1, while you're turning there, you'll note that Mark begins his gospel presentation with the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, we've seen from John's gospel, he begins out of eternity, doesn't he? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's beginning clear back before eternity. Matthew begins with a genealogy, and from there goes into uh, the uh, announcements of both John the Baptist and, and Jesus, and then into the birth narratives. And what's, what's uh, important about this is all four gospel writers are giving eyewitness accounts, Right? Now, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark begins with the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, he is the one who is uh, uh, preparing the way. He is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, verse 3. And then in verse 9, we have the baptism of Jesus. And in verses 12 and 13, we have Jesus' temptation, where he is tempted by the unbridled assault of Satan himself. And then you get to verse 14. Looky there. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. Now, you see, Mark is picking up after John the Baptist has been arrested. But the material that we've been studying in John's gospel is taking place before John is arrested. What is that to say? There's a gap being filled in here. The, 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 the material that we're studying right now isn't recorded by, uh, by Mark, nor is it recorded uh, by Matthew. So uh, we're getting some uh, insights here uh, that took place before. If you're looking at Mark 1.14, it took place before uh, that verse, if you will. Uh, now, if you look at verse 25, here we see a discussion arose between some of John's disciples. The Greek word there, zetesis, it actually, it could be translated to debate. Some of you may have debate. It actually could be translated controversy. There's a controversy that, that arises between them, and we're told, we're not given much, many details here, we're told it's over uh, purification. Probably, and, and we, could, we could relate with this, it probably has to do with how does John's baptism and Jesus' baptism relate to the Jewish rites of uh, purification. It actually would be a fascinating study to to look into. Uh, That's probably what it's about, but that's not primarily what's going on here. The primary thing that's going on here reveals it. It surfaces in verse 26. If you look there, John's disciples come to John, and they say to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Now, what's happening here? What's going on here? Well, John's disciples are getting upset. What are they upset about? Because more people are going to Jesus than to John. In fact, they won't even mention, commentators often point out they won't even mention Jesus by name. They're like that guy, that man across the river who was with you over there. They're all going to him. They're upset that all of these people are going to Jesus instead of John. In other words, Jesus is stealing John's thunder. Now, in the midst of this controversy, the Holy Spirit is about to give us one of the most important lessons in gospel ministry right here. 
I think it's probably one of the most important lessons that we can get in gospel ministry. Whether you're someone like myself who's involved in pulpit ministry or just simply every Christian who is trying to share their faith at the water cooler at work or wherever, there is an important, just an important message here concerning gospel ministry. And it occurs in John's answer. It starts in verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. Now, the first thing we want to point out about this is this is extraordinary humility. And I say this because John has been in front of huge crowds. And quite frankly, I think one of the problems that so many pastors have today is unfortunately they've been in front of crowds that are too big. What does that do to you? Being in front of crowds that are really, really big, large crowds. It's going to have many of the same effects that entertainers have. It's going to have all of that going on. John has been in front of big crowds. People have been coming out in droves uh, before uh, John. And now what's happening? Well, now it's starting to, the people are still coming to him, but more and more they're going to Jesus instead. And the disciples are like, what's, what's happening here? This whole thing's, it's, it's falling apart, John. We've got to do something. They're, they're, going to, they're, going to, they're, going to, they're going to that guy across the Jordan instead of coming to us. And what does, what does John say? John, <laughs> John's of a completely different disposition here. He says, listen, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. First thing we could say is there's extraordinary humility here. But that's not enough that needs to be said. You know, because if we stop right there, we say, oh, John had great humility. That's great. I mean, we see that. And we leave here saying, boy, I, I want to have great humility too. And what are you going to go home trying to do? You're going to go home trying to make yourself humble. Now, there's a lot of do-it-yourself projects out there, but that's not a do-it-yourself project. I've heard people talk like that. I've heard one, one person, I said, you know, I drive this old beat-up car because I want to be humble. Well... <laughs> If you drive an old beat-up car because you want to be humble, you also better be a good mechanic as well. Um, I drive old beat-up cars, and they break down. That's why a lot of people don't drive old beat-up cars. But is that going to make you humble? Uh, wearing old clothes, is that going to make you humble? All these external things we can do, is that going to make you humble? It's not a do-it-yourself project. What's going on here is really uh, clearly in view. It's what I want to call informed humility, informed humility. Now, I just drafted that in my study. I don't know if anyone else has ever used that phrase or not. If they have, it's purely coincidental. But let's think about this for a minute, not just humility, but let's think about it, informed humility, informed humility. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, notice what John says. He says, a person cannot receive, okay? A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Now, John understands something. John understands his God-given station in life. He understands that. I mean, God has assigned to each of us a station in life, every one of us. I, as I shared with you, I was born July 3rd, 1967, right across the river in the hospital over there. Now ask me, did I have anything to do with that? No. In fact, 
I don't even remember it. So you see, I've been having memory issues all my life. I don't remember it. I was there, but I don't remember a thing about it. Um, how did that happen? The Lord determines this, does he not? In fact, keep your place in John 3 and look at Acts 17. Fascinating text in Acts 17. I've made reference to it many times. It's a fascinating act, uh, text there where Paul is speaking to the Athenians. He's invited to speak at the Areopagus. And in the process of speaking to them there, in verse 24, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind, listen to this, life and breath and everything. That includes a pretty, pretty comprehensive list, isn't it? Everything. Verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all of the face of the earth. And here's the, here's, this is so fascinating. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Now, what does that mean? What, 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 what do we make of that? Well, each of us have been born in a station of life. We were born to parents who were in a station of life. And we were born with certain uh, abilities. We were born with certain disabilities. I have a disability. Does anybody ever know about it? Have I ever told you about my disability? I have a serious disability when it comes to playing basketball. I'm talking serious disability. Uh, I, 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 you, you could make that hoop as big as you want, and I'm not going to hit it. Yeah, I'm saying, I mean, I, I went out for basketball one time. Awful, awful experience. When I, I liked it. was all humiliating, man. <laughs> I'm glad I can laugh about it. I love the training. I love the weightlifting and the running and all that stuff. But, boy, very early on, I said, there's no way I'm going to do this in front of anybody but this team. I mean, as soon as they get, like when we went through school, you know, as soon as you got your, you didn't get your shoes until the first scrimmage. Once you got your shoes, okay, you, you cut it. I mean, you were allowed to be on the team. I thought, as soon as I get my shoes, I'm out of here. And they, I remember getting my shoes, and I remember going to Mr. Kosnick, my coach. I said, Mr. Kosnick, um, I, I got, you know, I got bad news, but I think I got good news, too. <laughs> bad news is I'm going to quit. The good news is I'm not going to be on that team. I mean, this is good for the team here, you know. Uh, it, it, I, I'm too short, for one, and it doesn't mean because you're short you can't be a good basketball player. There are people that are short. And I'm, I'm, just a, I'm just average height. I'm not, I need to be about eight more inches taller or a foot taller. And secondly, I just don't have the ability, the, the natural talent to... God's given me other things to do. So you understand what I'm saying. Our, our talents, our abilities, even our disabilities, they're all given by God. There isn't one of us that can do everything, is there? There isn't one of us. But listen to me, if you guys want to play basketball, you don't want me on your team. You want me on the other guy's team. <laughs> You say, we got a star boy for you. Uh, here, take, take him. I'll be on the team very, very shortly. And, um, but do you understand what I'm saying? John understands his humility is an informed humility. He understands his assignment. Uh, he, he, you know, 
He says, if you, if you look at verse 28, back to John chapter 3, I'm forgetting where I'm at here. John 23, and, or I'm sorry, John 3, verse 28. John is continuing. John's answering his disciples. He says, listen, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. Verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Now they did. John's baptizing. Huge crowds are coming to him. And the, and the leaders of, of Israel send people out to ask him if he's the Christ. And he says, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. But John understands his role. He understands his assignment. He says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. No, I am the guy that's sent before the Christ. So you see, his humility is an informed humility. Humility, as you've heard me say many times, is not putting yourself down. Actually, that can be a, very, that can be a significant sign of pride, putting yourself down. It's not putting yourself down. It's understanding where you fit in the grand scheme of things. John understands where he fits. This is where I fit. I am not the Christ. I have been sent before him. And understanding this, informs humility, and guess what? It kills envy. This is an envy killer, understanding this. What is envy? Envy is any kind of dissatisfaction that we might experience over the blessings that someone else has received. You hear about somebody receiving a blessing, and you have this uh, disdain for it. That's envy. You have this dissatisfaction for it. That's envy. Oh, look at them. Ba 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 uh, our hearts do that from time to time, don't they? Here's a way to kill it. It's a way to kill it. When we understand that opportunity, skill, gifting, station in life are all products of God's providence. They're all products of God's providence, and they all serve His kingdom. They all serve His will and purposes. I could give you hundreds of examples because all we'd have to do is point to any person who is named in the Scriptures, and we would have an example of this. Let's just use Paul because we're always talking about Paul. Who is Paul? Paul was Saul of Tarsus, right? Well, that tells you right there. Where's Paul from? Well, he's from Tarsus. That's no accident. He was born at a certain period of time in a certain place. He was given a certain intellect, which enabled him to eventually be instructed under the tutelage of one of the great teachers of Israel, right? Gamaliel. He probably memorized the entire Old Testament. I mean, there's all kinds of stories from history and antiquity that said he, some of these guys memorized. We're talking about memorizing Psalm 119. Hey, you guys, anybody got Genesis memorized? Could you imagine that task? Just incredible intellect. That's not an accident. That's not accidental. Because God chose him out of eternity to be what? The apostle to the Gentiles. That was his assignment. That was his role. It wasn't the neighbor's role. You know, the neighbor kid that he played with on the streets of, of Tarsus when he was growing up, that wasn't his neighbor's role. That was his role. Now, sometimes we get it all wrong, and we think, well, the only person that has a role is like, all right, the preacher or the apostles or this person or that person. Listen, we can point to any person in the Bible and say exactly the same thing that we're saying of the Apostle Paul. Someone will say, okay, uh, how do the evil guys, how do the evil guys play a role in this? They play a role in it. God is not just using the righteous to accomplish his ends. He's also using the evil ones to accomplish his ends, is he not? In fact, he uses Satan himself to accomplish his ends at the cross, doesn't he? 
every human being alive has a role in the assembly of God's kingdom. That's how we fit. We could be opposing it and being used to be a negative role in this, or we could be with him and being used by him to assemble his kingdom. But we could say this about everybody. We could say this about the Apostle Paul. We could go down the list and say it about everybody. But envy, it's, envy has a different agenda than this. Envy has a different agenda. Envy does not have the glory of God as its agenda. It has either the glory of self or the glory of someone or something else, doesn't it? Think about it. Think about the times that you've experienced envy. What really was at the heart of that experience? Who were you serving and who were you worried about whenever you experienced that? Oftentimes, it's ourself, is it not? It's ourself. What really what we're fussing about is that someone else got this blessing and we didn't, right? Is that how it works? Or someone else got the blessing other than who you would have liked to have seen get the blessing. But where do these blessings come from? I think I hear John answering, verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. Now, John the Baptist was chosen by God to be the forerunner, Right? He is the voice crying in the wilderness. Now, is it because of his devotion that he was chosen for this? Is it because he was such a great devoted guy? Is it because he was blameless, because of his, his piety? Is that why? The answer is no. We have to say no because, you know, I remember reading, I remember reading Matthew, and actually he was chosen this before he was even born. In fact, the angel comes to his parents and tells them all about it. Well, actually, before the angel came to Zechariah, Elizabeth had told him all about it. Isaiah, 700 years earlier, had told uh, everybody about this voice of one crying in the wilderness. You see, this had been chosen for him to do out of eternity. It's not because of any devotion or piety or blamelessness. Same thing could be said of Elizabeth. Same thing could be said of Simeon and Anna. How about Mother Mary? So much is made out of Mother Mary. You know, especially in the Roman Catholic Church, all these doctrines associated with Mother Mary. She's, she's, she's held up as a, as a matrix. I mean, I don't know if you understand what that means, it's, it's that she stands between us and Christ Jesus. Is that a biblical doctrine? Absolutely not. Jesus bids all of us to come directly to him. He bids us all to come to him. More about that in a moment. But was Mary chosen because she was pious, because she was devoted, because she was blameless? No, she was a chosen vessel out of eternity. And she was pious. She was devoted. She was a, a woman, a young woman of faith at the time that the angel came to her. And she's blessed of all women. Sometimes Protestants are guilty of swerving into a ditch on the opposite side of the road, not giving her any glory at all. She is to be glorified. She is blessed of all women. But where would her devotion come from? Where would her uh, blessedness have come from? Where would these things come from? Oh, I think I hear Jesus answering that in his talk with Nicodemus. Unless a person is born again, he cannot even see what? The kingdom. An unregenerate heart is not going to be a pious heart, a devoted heart a blameless heart. 
It might look that way on the outside. It may be discipline, but it's not going to be. So in other words, unless we receive this blessing from God, we're not going to be devoted. So we have to get it out of our minds. This is due to he who calls. She was chosen long ago, long ago. Ephesians 2.10. Keep your place in John. We'll look at a couple of other passages. Ephesians 2.10. You know, probably a lot of us can rattle off Ephesians 2.8. We're good with that one, but what what is verse 10? What's verse 10 say? Verse 10 is important too. So is verse 9, by the way. Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is what? It's a gift. It's the gift of God. And, and as if that is not enough, as if that is not clear enough, look at verse 9. Not as a result of works. Okay, not as a result of your piety, your devotion, etc., so that no one may boast. Right? Now look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Which God prepared beforehand. The work that John the Baptist has been called to do is a work that was prepared beforehand, long before he was ever born, just like the work we've been prepared to do. I mean, I happen to believe that God has prepared me to do what I'm doing right now, right here in this room. Prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Interestingly enough, 1 Corinthians, I just want to show you this real quick. We've been looking at 1 Corinthians a lot as we've been studying John's gospel, and I've been sharing with you that you know, if you don't have a commentary on your bookshelf at home and uh, on John, I just want to share with you there's a commentary in the Bible. The Bible is its best interpreter, and we've got commentaries in the Bible. We've got, we've got verses that shed light on other verses. And if we look at, um, if we look at 1 Corinthians 3 and 4, uh, yeah, this shines a lot of light on things. You know, if you look at chapter 3, verse 1, Paul is writing to the Corinthians. There's a lot of church problems in the church. One of them is division. He says, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I led you with milk, not with solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready. For if you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, you're not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. When one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, you see, it's not quite exactly the same thing, but you can almost hear the voices of John's disciples saying, hey, they're over there. Paul says in verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Isn't that fascinating? As the Lord assigned to each. So the people that are listening to Apollos are people that the Lord has assigned to listen to Paul, to Apollos. And the people that are listening to Paul are those who were assigned to listen to Paul. I think that's fascinating because when I read that, I think to myself, the folks that are coming up the steps on Sunday morning, Lord, you're bringing them. I am so happy 
and thankful for every single one of you because I recognize that you're sitting here because God has brought you. Do you see what I'm It's the same thing here. Sometimes people will come. People will come and visit. We're looking for a church. My prayer always is, and, and there's many, many, many of you who pray with me about this, you know that my prayer always is, Lord, lead them where you will have them. Lead them where you will. If it's here, it would be, it would be wonderful. But lead them where you will have them to be. It's so freeing and it's so liberating to pray that way. It's the same thing that John. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You see, this is an informed, on John's part here, it's an informed humility. It's an informed humility. But notice, look what, look what Paul will say in, in, in chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7. He says, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? He's saying the same thing as John the Baptist, isn't he? This informed humility. Listen, we're not to worship preachers. this This is a badly needed message today. Because we are in such a celebrity-crazed culture. We are in such a personality-crazed culture. We are not to worship preachers. I mean, if you think about it, a celebrity preacher should really be an oxymoron. Because a true preacher, what is he doing? He is preaching the gospel. Does the world like the gospel? No. The first thing, first order of business in gospel preaching is to tell everybody how bad they are. Who wants to hear that? One of the, you want to find out where someone is at really quickly. Just ask them this question. Do you think you're a good person? And a, an unregenerate heart will do this. They'll say, well, I know I'm not perfect, but, uh, you know, I... Uh, um, I, I, think I'm, I think I'm okay. I think there's a few things I could do to kind of listen. That's unregenerate heart right there talking. I just asked the question, and you can answer it for yourself, for yourself. Do you think you're a good person? And if you're kind of answering, saying, well, you know, hey, I mean, I don't think I'm well. Yeah, 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 I think I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty good, I'm pretty good. Or we might not answer that way. We, we, we might say, well, you know, I got a lot of flaws and stuff, but I'm only human. Listen, all of that, that's lost. It's lost. First order of the business. First order of the gospel preachers to tell everybody how bad they are. Is that going to give you some kind of celebrity status? Now, of course, sometimes the celebrity preacher is a celebrity preacher who is regarded as a celebrity by the church itself. And again, we, that has to be resisted. We're not to worship preachers. Let me use myself as an example. I walked in heathendom for many, for many, many years before I was called to faith. I thought I was a believer. I wasn't living like one. It was only until the Lord came to me by way of his Holy Spirit, doing what Jesus is talking about to Nicodemus. Open my heart so I can see. Open my, open my mind so that I can, I can perceive. Open in my ears so that I can hear. All this is to say, I'm not any better than any person in this room. Not a single one. Let me ask you this question. Do you think I'm more important than anyone else in this room? Did you come up the steps this morning thinking that Rick is more important than you? 
If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, that is false. I, I'm no more important than a single one of you because God shows no partiality, does he? He shows no partiality. This whole idea of, of, of exalting man and, and offering worship to man is pagan. It is not Christian. Notice what John is saying. Back to John chapter 3. He says, listen, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. He understands his station. This is extraordinary humility, but it's an informed humility. John understands his role. He understands the, how he's to play it out. He says in verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness. I told you I'm not the Christ. My role is to be sent before him. And then in verse 29, this is so important. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. That's an interesting illustration, isn't it? It's an illustration from a wedding. And we've already said back in chapter 2, it was a few weeks ago, we were talking about weddings and how weddings in the Old Testament, these Old Testament weddings could go on for a week. A lot of planning, a lot of preparation, a lot of all this stuff went in. But one thing was not to happen is the friend of the bridegroom. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. You see, the one thing that is not to happen is nobody is to eclipse the bride or the bridegroom. When I've helped people, I don't know how many weddings now I've officiated, but when I've held people with weddings and helped people with their, you know, the ceremony itself and everything, I've made it really clear. Listen, I've said to the bride, listen, this is your hour. No one is to eclipse you in this hour because this is your hour. That's why if you look at the bride party, the bridal party, the dresses, it's traditionally, the, the bride's dress is the most extravagant, isn't it? She should be dressed in a way that everyone who sees her realizes that's the bride, definitely. But then you go down the order. The bride's maid, her dress is typically different than the, than, or the maid of honor, rather. Her dress is typically different than, than the bride's maid's. And you should be able to recognize her as well. She's not the bride, but that must be. We should be able to sit there and say, ah, that's the bride. Even if we don't know anybody in there, we said, that's the bride. She's got to be the maid of honor. The rest are bridesmaids just by their dress. But it would be inappropriate for anybody at the wedding to eclipse them, to overshadow them, whether it be the best man or whether it be the maid of honor, because it's their hour. Does that make sense? And what John is saying here, he is saying the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. What is he saying? Jesus is the bridegroom. He's obviously drawing from the Old Testament prophets again, which oftentimes speak of the people of Israel or the church as the bride and the Lord as the husband. And he's saying the friend of the bridegroom, anyone who is friends with the bridegroom, in other words, anyone who is a friend of Jesus should rejoice at the sound of his voice. And the whole point here is summarized so succinctly in verse 30. He must increase, and I must decrease. You see, their ministries overlap for a little while. But John, out of not just humility, but an informed humility, recognizes he has to decrease. A minister cannot simultaneously glorify himself and Jesus at the same time. A decision has to be made at the start, which is which here. 
Are we going to be on about glorifying ourselves, or are we going to be on about glorifying Jesus? Both cannot happen at the same time. The worship does not belong to the pastor. The worship belongs to the Lord. Does that make sense? That's why I am referred to as a pastor and not a priest. Remember, most people don't get this explained to them. You've ever wondered what the difference is between a pastor and a priest? If you get online, you just poke around online. I did that yesterday. I was thinking, what are they saying online? Oh, my goodness. Get online, you poke around on there. And a lot of sentimentality, which is manipulative. Oh, both uh, serve their congregations. Both do this. Both do that. Both do this. Both do All this sentimental stuff. What they're leaving out is the priest undergoes what is known as the sacrament of holy orders. And in this sacrament of holy orders, it is held by uh, these bishops that do this that upon this sacrament, which is a man-made sacrament of holy orders, that the soul of this man is actually altered in a way where it actually becomes supernatural. Hey, you can read the, the you can read the documents. I'm just merely reciting to you the actual official documents of the Catholic Church in regards to this. Now we've got it in our minds that this kind of talk is not nice. We shouldn't say these things. We shouldn't do these things. We got to get out of that because a lot of people don't understand that. I, I've never undergone any kind of ordination where my soul has been altered and um, listened. Um, I need Jesus as bad as you do. And I'm not, listen, I want to make sure you understand that I am not throwing rocks at anybody here. I've been meditating on this for some time, on this. And the more I meditate on this, the more my heart goes out to these priests. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but they're, they're required to undergo celibacy. They're required to, to be single. That's unnatural. Some of us are given the gift of singleness. Some of us are given that gift, and that's wonderful. John Stott would be a great example of a man who's been given that singleness. The Apostle Paul would be a great example of someone who's been given that singleness. But to do that to everybody, to say, okay, all pastors in the ARP church are now going to be celibate. He has to live with that. And what's that going to create? Obviously, it's going to create all kind of problems, all kind of stuff. And if you follow the doctrinal, you follow the doctrine all the way down. If they're following Rome, there is no regeneration because it's another gospel altogether. So here you have a guy that's, that's already operating in an unnatural way who has to appear to be holy, yet has no faculty to bring holiness in himself. It's Nicodemus. The Pharisees had this, read Matthew 23, it had this whole battery of external rites made to make the outside clean, the outside beautiful. And Jesus says, you know, you're beautiful on the outside, but inside you're full of dead man's bones. My heart goes out to these men. But when it comes to verse 30, 
Nobody is to stand between you and Jesus. It's a wicked thing. It's a wicked thing to stand between a person and Jesus or to posit oneself as a mediator, whether we be looking at Mary or whether we be looking at a priest, to where I would stand between one of you and one of you would come to me and say, uh, Rick, forgive me for I have sinned. For if you've sinned against me, okay, fine. But if you've sinned against one another, well, go over. Don't, don't tell me. Go over and talk to, go talk to him. That's who you've sinned against. But before you do that, go talk to the Lord. I'm here to pray with you. I'll help you. We can pray together if you want. I can't forgive your sins. When Jesus offers forgiveness of sins in the Gospels, what do they do? They're ready to pick up rocks to stone him because he's doing something only God can do. It is so easy for a pastor to get in the way of a congregation. Let me, you know, let me offer another one. I've been thinking about this for a long time. Let me offer another one. Worship. If I ever get any kind of idea that someone in this congregation is regarding me higher than they should regard me, I'm going to stop it, and I'm going to stop it right away. It happens sometimes. Because, listen, you can see me. You can't see Jesus. And it's easy to attach yourself to me and not attach. But listen, I have to decrease. My only role is to help people come to Christ. Does that make sense? That's my role. That should be your role as well. The same thing could happen to you. If the Lord would give you some success in leading some souls to Christ, you may have people that will attach themselves to you. And they're gonna, you're going to identify at this because they're always going to be going on about you instead of going on about Jesus. Listen carefully who they go on about. Are they always going on about you? Are they always going, don't accept that. You know, the Pope rides into town and everybody's worshiping and he does nothing to stop it. That is wicked. That is absolutely wicked. The angels, whenever they're being worshiped in Scripture by human beings, what do they do every time? They stop it. John, in the Revelation, bows down, begins worshiping an angel. What does the angel do? He stops him. The man, the Apostle Paul, we were studying the Apostle Paul and, and Barnabas. People start worshiping them. They start calling them Zeus and Hermes. What do they do? They stop it immediately. He must, verse 30, he must increase, but we must decrease. Where does this humility come from? It's an informed humility. Not just humility, but it's an informed humility. It's a humility that's informed this way. We look to ourselves. We see our station in life. Each one of us has a birthday, right? A date of birth. One of these days on some tombstone somewhere, it's going to say July 3rd, 1967, and there's going to be another date next to it. That was our station. That was the duration of our station during this lifetime. That is the role that we've been given. You see, that's the role we must embrace. That is an informed, that is an informed humility when we understand this is the role that we play. And when we understand that all the blessings that are in our lives are blessings that we've received from above, it's an envy killer. And it'll help us to walk in the way that John is leading us to walk. Heavenly Father. Lord, teach us these things. Father, teach us these things. 
And Father, especially as we, as we contemplate, as we think about some of the practices that go on in the Catholic Church and even in the Protestant Church where, where pastors are, where they are uh, heralded way above what they should be heralded. Lord, we know that that grieves you. Oh, Father, we pray that, Lord, you will inform us that we will see so very clearly the Lord, each and every one of us, there isn't one of us that is better than the other. There isn't one of us that is above the other in this regard. And that, Father, you would, you would press this upon us, that, Lord, you would lead our hearts into a posture of what we are calling this informed humility. Well, Father, do these things, we pray. Do these things for your glory that, Lord, we would, we would decrease that, Lord, you may increase. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.